focus on the problem, not not you know like picking on some fuel. Fuels are useful, and and we need to think about it. We need to differentiate. We need to be a little smarter in how we're ap- approaching the problem. And you know, I, I think we're actually getting there. And I think that the experience that people are having uh, this year uh, with uh, with uh, fuels is is awakening people to the idea that yes, we have to do this. We, you know, controlling the fugitive carbon. We're going to get on with it, but let's be practical and sensible about it uh, because uh, there are so many ways that it's useful and it's needed in the economy and for for living. This is the 966. This is the 966, episode 22, Mumtaz Richard. Thank you. Today, we have a truly excellent and special guest joining us, Adam Siminski. Adam just finished serving as president of Capsarc, the leading think tank based in Saudi Arabia, and is still an advisor to the board of trustees there. On today's show, we'll be taking advantage of Adam's deep experience in the energy industry. He was the head of the U.S. EIA and was the senior director for energy and environment on the U.S. National Security Council at the White House. Adam also had a long career on Wall Street as an energy analyst. Adam, thank you so much for joining the 966 today. Hey, I'm great gratefully acknowledge the the uh, gr- terrific work that you're doing and i'm delighted to be here well thank you very much before we roll up our sleeves here shukran to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast wherever you get your podcast it's totally free and a zoom fist bump to all of our viewers on youtube um okay richard let's get started what's your one big thing this week well let me let me before I, we get into that i just want to do a shout out to capsark we as everyone knows we do a daily newsletter and a weekly as well and we re- frequently cite capsark's works it's outstanding research objective um really uh, good work you've done with that organization adam and and uh something to be proud of thank you richard there are, are a lot of uh a good young Saudi researchers at Capsarc and a bunch of expats too. We have a good mix. Uh, some 20 countries actually have uh, researchers at Capsarc. And uh, we're doing a lot of work in the area of, uh, of climate in addition to energy and sustainability. And uh, it's really exciting uh, to see the uh, half of our employees who are Saudis, a third of them are women, uh, doing a great job and and helping to bring the kingdom uh, along into the global community that's working on energy and climate issues. Impressive, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because these are topics that we we've been touching on since since our very first episode, mm-hmm. and it, it'd be good to actually learn something about them, wouldn't you think, Lucian? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Twenty-two episodes in, why don't we figure out what we're talking about? Um, my one big thing, and this story struck me as a bit of a Vision 2030 success story. It's a it's a fintech startup with international investors that creates jobs and has global aspirations. So. Just this past April, 2021, Tamara, which is a buy now, pay later, BNPL platform, raised $110 million in Series A funding, the largest ever raised by a MENA region startup uh, at that time. Uh, Tamara, is, it was just launched in September 2020, so it's just barely over a year old, uh, by three Saudis, I guess, who hardly knew each other. And they're trying to get a slice of that BNPL market, which is expected to grow uh, 20, 20% a year to over $20 billion by 2027. 
if you haven't run across a BNPL scheme, it's it's especially attractive to younger shoppers or those with less established credit. And um, Tamara got a huge boost during the pandemic as consumers, you know, opted for more e-commerce, and and there they grew a hundredfold between just January and November 2021. And they expect to do 266 million in payments this first financial year. But again, back to in terms of Vision 2030, what's uh, Tamara is an especially exciting story because uh, it's just over a year since it's been launched. It already employs 137 people in offices in Riyadh, Dubai, Berlin, and Ho Chi Minh City. Has attracted two million customers in in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Kuwait, and has uh, 2,000 merchants you know, as clients, including global brands such as Adidas, Ikea, and Yves Saint Laurent. So um, it struck me as sort of a darling, if you're looking at the Vision 2030, what, what they want to see happen. Yeah, I mean, the startup industry the uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, I mean, just the numbers that have come out this year now that 2021 is finished, 270% um, growth rate of startups uh, since 2020. Um, 50% growth in, uh, so, sorry, excuse me, um, 270% growth compared with 2020, um, 54% growth um, with 139 startup deals. I mean, this is this is like the heart of Vision 2030, right? It's like getting companies to start themselves up, getting a VC ecosystem to make not just seed investments, but Series A, Series B, follow-on investments, watching these companies grow, eventually get listed on the Tata Wool or Nomu. It's cool. It's really It's really cool to see. And, you know, let me do a little promo, because if you don't get our, our, our daily newsletter, it's the way it's set up is there's a, there's a feature and then there's three sort of premium, not premium, but, you know, topics that we want you to see. And then there's 25 to 30 citations and, and articles and posts that cover a whole range of things. But one of the one of the three featured ones today was uh, an IHS magnet study on the Saudi uh, startup ecosystem in 2021. It's really, really good. I encourage you to go take a look at it because it is encouraging from Saudi Arabia's perspective. My one big thing, okay, this week, gentlemen, enough people say they know they can't believe. Saudi Arabia, we have a Winter Olympic team. It looks like Cool Runnings 2 might be filming so soon in Saudi Arabia. Um, the kingdom is sending its first two, uh, well, two Saudis have qualified for the Winter Olympics for the first time, um, Salman Al-Hawaish and Fayek Abdi, um, both in skiing, uh, Al-Hawaish in slalom and Abdi for the giant slalom. Um, final places are yet to be assigned by the Saudi Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but um, it's just, this is just like really exciting. This is their first time that they will be hoisting the flag at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, which begin um, February 4th. Um, it's interesting, obviously, because although Saudi Arabia doesn't have the climate you'd expect to send a, regu a regular group of athletes to the Winter Olympics, it does have uh, a lot of tall mountains um, in the Asir region, especially. Um, <laughs> but no skiing. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that is about to change as well. The Mall of Saudi has been announced, which is um, right. coming. Yeah, it's coming to Riyadh. It is going to blow Dubai's indoor skiing situation completely out of the water. 40,000 square meter indoor sl snow slope. Um, it will be the fourth largest in the world outside of China. So China has the, the biggest three. Um, and uh, I should mention that Saudi Arabia does already have several small snow experience fund centers. But um, I just wanted to use my one big thing this week to congratulate these skiers who, um, you know, will be going to Beijing. At least one of them will be. So congrats to those guys. Uh, that's awesome. Um, really cool to see.
It is. You, um, I think that Mall of Saudi is, is that's a Majin Al Futain project, I think, and uh, and he just passed the patriarch of that really impressive company. Um, let me foreshadow a little bit, and and if you look at the topics we'll 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 cover today, apart from uh, the circular carbon economy and renewables, and Adam will will walk us through and help help us understand better. Uh, a lot of the things we'll be talking about have to do with with participation, athletic participation, and the Olympics is the first one. We'll have some more later on, but I just wanted to, I wanted to do a, a lead-in. That's going to be a recurring theme in today's episode. And if the kingdom is looking for a hockey coach, I mean, I could, <laughs> I could jump in at any point. Um, okay, let's move on to our first two topics today as we talk energy with expert Adam Siminski from Capsarc. The circular carbon economy concept has gained enormous momentum in recent years as the best way for individual nations to combat climate change. Um, it is a, Adam, as you have previously described it, a holistic approach that uses all the tools in the toolbox to reduce emissions. Um, the G20 has endorsed the CCE in 2020, and one of Capsarc's many ongoing research projects is something we want to start with here, the Circular Carbon Economy Index Project, which is a tool for governments and other climate change policy stakeholders to evaluate progress in support of domestic planning and decision making in the nexus of energy, emissions, and the economy. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Aramco have adopted the circular carbon, circular carbon Economy Framework as a way to reduce their carbon footprints. Adam, let's start by talking about what Saudi Arabia is doing now and is planning to do in order to achieve a fully circular carbon economy nationally. Uh, sure, I'd be uh, delighted to do that. Before I do, uh, you know, it does actually snow uh, up in the uh, region up by Al Ula in the uh, northern part of Saudi Arabia. And when it does, you, you, you get all kinds of uh, pictures posted on Twitter of the Saudis uh, enjoying the snow. Not enough to ski on though, but so that indoor mall is gonna be really interesting. <laughs> um, the circular carbon economy. Well, um, look, it's, you actually framed it very nicely. It's, a, it's really a concept. It is, it is uh, an approach and it's open for everybody, not just Saudi Arabia. I mean, so the idea is to take something that is very well known and accepted the circular economy, where we say we need to reduce, we need to reuse and recycle generally materials in the economy, and then extend it with another R, remove, to carbon. So if you say, you know, well, what are these things in the circular carbon economy concept? What are the four R's? Uh, again, reduce, reuse, recycle, and remove. Uh, reduce are things like energy efficiency, uh, and renewables uh, also includes nuclear power, by the way, uh, and hydrogen can fit in that one as well. But and Saudi Arabia is all in favor of efficiency, and Saudi Arabia is all in favor of renewables, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, reuse and recycle are all kinds of really interesting things that SABIC and Saudi Aramco have underway already to uh, try to take carbon dioxide and uh, uh, and use it uh, in uh, products that can be sold, help grow the economy, help create jobs. Uh, things like producing methanol, uh, producing fertilizers, uh, urea from uh, carbon uh, dioxide. The really interesting part that for the kingdom is to come to the remove aspect. And there are all kinds of things that you can do and remove. Uh, you can remove geologically by storing uh, carbon dioxide in, in saline reservoirs or in oil and gas. Uh, reservoirs. 
you can remove it biologically. Uh, there are uh, mangrove restoration projects being considered in the kingdom, tree planting programs and so on. And that's another way to remove carbon dioxide. Uh, there are some really uh, clever uh, projects that are underway around the world. And I think you're gonna see this in Saudi Arabia for direct air capture, literally pulling uh, carbon dioxide right out of the atmosphere. So you, you come back to, so we're gonna use all of these tools in the toolbox that you mentioned. You know, if you're gonna build a house, you need more than just a hammer. You know, you're, you need uh, all kinds of, of, of ways to approach it. And that's the multiple pathways. Uh, let's get this done uh, with as many different uh, technologies as we can that make sense for individual countries and their own circumstances. So it's, uh, it's really kind of a, an interesting idea. The, the problem, uh, you know, I think comes where a lot of people just say, oh, well, we've been hearing about this and we just don't believe that it's going to happen. And that's why we just want to pick a single pathway. We just want renewables and we don't want anything else. Problem is, is that won't actually get the job done. And it could leave us, you know, as we saw this this uh, summer and, and even now in terms of natural gas prices in Europe and elsewhere, it could leave us stuck between, you know, stuck in the midst of this global energy conversion. Um, Adam, we, we, we spent a lot of time in some earlier episodes on the COP26 in Glasgow in November. It's mm -hmm. fascinating, and it's been interesting to watch Saudi Arabia's uh, path uh, from sort of digging their heels in a little bit to being, you know, the, the green initiative and, and being much more participatory. But one of the big messages uh, that, you know, that they were carrying, especially the Minister of Energy, Prince uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, was that, you know, we need to do exactly what you're saying. We can't just go to renewables. We can't just, we, we need to look at a broader issue of reducing um, uh, emissions uh, in a variety of ways. And he continues to pound that drum. He was just at the World Economic Forum talking about the very same thing. One of the questions and one of the criticisms is, okay, okay, we're open to this, but is the technology there? And is it scalable? Well, that, you know, there, there's no perfect energy source. <laughs> I mean, every form of energy has its own set of problems. Uh, the storage of uh, carbon dioxide in geologic uh, formations has been going on for years. Uh, Norway was doing it uh, in one of their big fields. There's a lot of experience with this. The geologists are pretty comfortable with the whole idea and this is scalable. So uh, the, you know, the CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage, uh, that storage aspect, I think, is really pretty well known and it's scalable. The other thing that's really scalable uh, is uh, some of these green initiatives, like the Saudi Green Initiative, uh, having to do with forestry and then looking at ocean-based uh, kinds of storage, uh, both uh, in the ocean, on the shoreline, like mangroves and on land uh, uh, forestry. Uh, there are some really interesting uh, aspects of, of seaweed that can actually store relatively permanently uh, carbon uh, dioxide. Same thing is true for mangroves. They actually change the soil chemistry and lock up the uh, CO2. 
so I, I think these technologies are known in many cases, it's a question of cost. Well, uh, solar used to be uh, costly and a lot of money went into solar, brought the cost down. It became scalable uh, and we were very successful in doing that. Did the same thing with wind. Now I think we just have to move on, and do the same thing with some of these other technologies, including direct air capture. And I assume you 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 you'd want to throw hydrogen in there as well, particularly green hydrogen, in terms of, of that oh. cycle. Yeah, that cycle. absolutely. Uh, and and really, there's nothing wrong with blue hydrogen either, even though sometimes you get the environmentalists saying, "Well, they don't like that." Uh, blue hydrogen is just using you know what would otherwise be gray hydrogen, using uh, hydrocarbons to make the hydrogen, capturing the CO2 that comes off of that and storing it. So if you store all of the CO2 that comes off of it, then uh, there's really no difference in a sense between that and green hydrogen, which is usually thought of as using solar and wind to uh, electrolyze water into hydrogen and, and oxygen. Uh, these uh, these technologies and that one is kind of expensive too. I mean, there is no. Uh, it, it's we may actually make more progress early on with blue hydrogen than with green because of the costs associated uh, with doing it. Uh, there's uh, I've read a lot of interesting things on on blue versus green and and uh, the technolo technological uh, challenges of green. Uh, but with regard to Saudi Arabia's efforts, there's a couple of questions if, if I can throw them out there. One of the things in that reduced list, you know, energy efficiency, non-biorenewables, nuclear energy, but it was also fuel switching. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I assume this is something along the Jafura plant where they're, they're expanding their, their gas production in order to replace uh, crude that's used for power and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and so that's what, you know, that reduces the overall emissions. Is, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about fuel switching? Right. Uh, in Saudi Arabia today, there's about 70 gigawatts of electric capacity. 40% uh, of that is oil and liquids. 60% uh, of that is natural gas. Very small percentage right now is, is uh, renewables. But there are big plans uh, to grow renewables between now and 2030. Uh, so that the mix will be closer to half gas and half renewables, uh, mostly solar, but some wind thrown in. Uh, there are uh, plans uh, 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 being drafted up uh, right now uh, for some, you know, three dozen uh, kind of solar and wind farms. Uh, about a dozen of those would be uh, wind farms. The other two dozen would be a mixture of uh, photovoltaic solar and concentrated solar power, uh, about four of those kind of plants. And that, uh, it, that's how the kingdom plans to get to that, uh, that uh, you know, what I would call a stretch target of half of the electricity in the kingdom coming from renewables uh, by 2030. Yeah, I, 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 I think that the kingdom uses 3.5 million barrels a day on power and electricity, which is an enormous number compared to you know other countries of larger size, and so any kind of any way to mitigate that is a plus, as you say. That's the the um, that 
that number goes up and down. Right. When when you're using the most is during the summertime when it's hot, you need air conditioning. And so that comes back to another thing where the kingdom is actually showing a lot of leadership. Uh, Some uh, uh, number of years ago, uh, Prince Abdulaziz uh, bin Salman, his uh, Royal Highness, uh, the Minister of Energy, uh, worked on efficiency standards for air conditioners in the kingdom. So the kingdom has some fairly decent uh, air conditioning efficiency standards, among, among others. And that's helping to flatten out the growth in uh, in the need for electricity. It gets really hot here in the summertime, you know. For you know, we often, you know, in in uh, in Celsius, we see fifty degrees. You know, for for those of you uh, in the United States, that's you know one hundred and twenty, <laughs> and and that's really hot. And we and interestingly. This isn't just Saudi Arabia, it's in the region, but across Asia and places in Africa and Latin America, there's also uh, big economic growth, big population growth and huge need for air conditioning. The IEA, uh, International Energy Agency, calculates that the fastest growing need for electricity, uh, probably beyond Bitcoin in the short run, is uh, is, uh, air conditioning uh, in developing countries. Yeah, yeah, and that, as you say, temperatures are rising. Cause the reason that wet wet bulb index is going to be really problematic for too long in in a number of places around the Gulf. Um, I I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Well, I just wanted to jump in. There was there's one other thing that I I wanted to mention, and and that is when you think about things like the growth in air conditioning, there are a lot of people in the world that don't have electricity. I mean, there's a billion people that don't have electricity. There's uh, and there's a, more than that, maybe a billion and a half that don't have clean cooking fuel, right? And the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which a lot of people really believe in, I mean, we should deliver on those, uh, say that there should be access uh, for everybody to clean, modern, uh, affordable uh, energy. And and I think in this is what you were saying, uh, Richard, in the in the short run, we just can't switch over to renewables. There's there are a lot of needs that can only be supplied uh, for a decade or two or three to come uh, from from oil and natural gas. And so we just need to find a way to to use it uh, without creating environmental harm. And I think it's possible. Is it your sense? just globally, if you look at the, the acceptance of the, the concept, circular carbon economy, CCUS, and, and we, we spent some time talking about the G20, of course, last year, the, the, the one in Riyadh, and, and one of the coups we thought, or one of the really positive things for Saudi Arabia coming to that was the G20 endorsing CCE, essentially. Right. Um, is it your sense that it's becoming more broadly accepted as a viable alternative? You know, I think there's still a little bit of reluctance because uh, I think there's this just general feeling that the problem keeps getting worse and somebody must be responsible for that. Nobody wants to look in the mirror and say, hey, you know, you're responsible. Uh, and and uh, it's pretty easy uh, to uh, blame uh, the producers of, of hydrocarbons. You know, you kind of get into a really interesting uh I don't know, uh, question, uh, you know, who should be responsible for uh, 
the consumption of gasoline? Should it be the oil companies that, that produce the oil and refine the gasoline? Or should it be the, the uh, refiners? Uh, you know, should it be the, the gasoline stations? Or should it be the consumers who are putting it in their cars and, and using it? And, you know, there's, there's actually a name for that. They call it scope one, scope two, and scope three you know, emissions and scope three is down at the consumer level. And, you know, I think that it ought to be the users to take some responsibility for, for these emissions. Well, that scope three issue is an interesting one. And, and I think the Saudis were feeling that when they were pinged and criticized for their, their, uh, their NDCs and their, their uh, commitments, when people say, well, what do you haven't addressed the scope three? And I, I think the, the natural response to say, look, we anticipate we're preparing for going out of business at some point with terms of our fossil fuels, but that doesn't mean we should just close up shop right now. Um, and that's that's their point. There's better ways to do this. But exactly that scope three, that uh, that scope three section is kind of an orphan, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's the one I said, look in the mirror and, yeah. and, try, and try to see who, who ought to take some of the responsibility, you know, back to the to the G20. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's pretty interesting because the G20 has just as many um, oil consumers consuming nations, you know, in it as they do producing nations. And uh, the uh, ministers uh, and leaders, so it was, this was endorsed by uh, the at the leaders summit, uh, you know, what they said is, well, it it kind of hit in all of the, the right areas. It was voluntary. It was holistic. It was integrated. Uh, it was inclusive. And, uh, and, and, and the board that I like the best, it's pragmatic. You know, I'm really in favor of pragmatic solutions that can actually be implemented. And, uh, and coming back to, that does not exclude renewables. It does not exclude efficiency. The Saudis have uh, some of the strongest auto fuel efficiency standards that exist. You know, they're they're uh, similar to the, the standards in the US, which are fairly stringent. And the, the uh, when you think about this, uh, what Saudi Arabia and a lot of other oil producing countries are saying is, don't write us off. There's still a demand for this product coming from consumers who need it. Uh, families that don't have clean cooking fuels, maybe propane is really the interim solution. But, you know, does it create carbon dioxide? Yes. Well, we'll figure out a way with technology to deal with that. You know, that, that we can do it. Um, but, but the idea that we're going to overnight turn the switch and, and ban fossil fuels. And you, and I've actually seen proposals for that. That's like, that's like, that's, uh, really, uh, you know, what, uh, what, uh, Prince Abdulaziz, uh, says is la la lamb. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not realistic in, in many ways, even though climate change is obviously a real issue. Um, it's it's fascinating looking at Saudi Arabia, and, and a lot of people, I think, just by default, assume that this global energy transition is a crisis for uh, major oil producers. And in many ways, you can look at it that way. The, the sense I get from Saudi, and I think, Lucian, you'll agree, is that increasingly they see it as an opportunity to make this transition and 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 they look you know they they look closely at the solar and the onshore wind trajectory and and they sort of see that happening in, in the 2020s 
is is a very critical decade, and you know, even cut it down to maybe five years. But they they see they see that, and they want to be at the heart of the emergence of the technologies in terms of carbon capture, in terms of hydrogen, and just looking at carbon capture, when when you look at at place like Saudi Arabia, they seem to have certain advantages. In other words, they they have they have natural sinks, they have uh, very um, f fairly localized emissions, you know, at the, at uh, processing and and things like that. So, you know, the the actual technology and being able to capture these carbon emissions, they they might have a pretty good shot at doing, you know, making real inroads here. Would you agree? I think that that's, uh, that's a really interesting thought because a lot of the, you know, most of the oil production in the kingdom uh, is concentrated in the eastern province over by the, uh, uh, the uh, Arab Gulf. And the, the, there is an industrial city there called Jubail. It's uh, north of Dakran and Dammam, uh, where Aramco is headquartered. And in that industrial city, there's a lot of users of, uh, of fossil fuels, chemical plants and refineries and so on. Uh, and there's production and nearby there's places to store. Uh, there's port facilities there. So you could do a, a lot. You could create a hub for both carbon dioxide and hydrogen, you know, in the Jubail area. Uh, and and with relatively uh, short pipeline distances, be able to collect and distribute both hydrogen and CO2 from the from the uh, kinds of uh, companies that are creating it to the kinds of companies that can recycle and reuse uh, uh, that that product and and then ultimately remove it and do something with it. Uh, Aramco uh, already sold. Uh, blue hydrogen in the form of ammonia uh, transported to Japan. And you could, you know, again, that's scalable, it's doable. Uh, and there's a lot of geologic places in the kingdom to, uh, to, to store uh, CO2. Even on, on the eastern coast of uh, Saudi Arabia, over by the Red Sea, there's not a lot of oil and gas production. There is some gas there, but the, there are some basaltic rocks that could actually store CO2. So there's lots of opportunities here. And I think what, what needs to be done, not just in Saudi Arabia, but globally, uh, is countries need to push uh, R&D demonstration projects and, and convert those demonstration projects into uh, development and, uh, and get on with it. That's what brought the cost down for solar and wind. And I think the same thing is gonna happen have to happen for hydrogen and carbon dioxide. I think it, it's important to add that part of the things that brought down the solar, the solar in particular, was in, sense, in essence making a market. I think Saudi Arabia is trying to do this by hydrogen green, especially green hydrogen, is not economic. Uh, yet there are significant projects moving forward in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in essence, I think trying to make a market to create this virtuous cycle between you know a market technology, a market technology, and learn learn technology to 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 cut that price. So uh, it's funny they are making an effort financially, and and it's a money losing effort at the moment. 
in in I think in the hopes and in the expectation that it will eventually be economically viable. Right, and I think that if you get started on it early, when it might be uh, more expensive than than you would hope, uh, you have uh, a foothold into the technology and the experience needed to actually uh, be uh, able to convert that into scale. Uh, when it does become profitable. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the kingdom strategy is going to be to find a way uh, to turn uh, carbon dioxide into valuable products one way or the other that can be uh, sold in the global marketplace. Endlessly fascinating subject for me. And, and I think uh, for, as I said, a recurring theme on on the uh, 966 because it's so central to, to many things that Saudi Arabia is trying to accomplish in its transition. Can I come back to one other thing, Richard? The, sure. the, the people that say we just want to ban, uh, you know, hydrocarbons, you know, they're missing a lot that, uh, you know, and we already talked about uh, how access to energy is going to be important for both fairness, equity, uh, and, and reliability. Uh, but in a lot of cases, there are really no practical solutions. I mean, aviation, uh, heavy duty shipping, maritime, uh, trucking, cement manufacturing, metal smelting. Uh, you know, th there are uh, projects underway now to do some, uh, you know, iron and steel production using hydrogen. Uh, but again, it's small and it's expensive, and we need to experiment with that and get the cost down. Uh, but the bulk of cement and, and iron and steel produced around the world uh, uh, are very, very energy intensive, and we just can't stop that overnight. So we need to find ways, again, to deal with issues like that. And then finally, there's the issue of, of infrastructure. And I think that's what the Europeans learned this winter is you have to be very careful with the existing infrastructure that you don't that you don't somehow throw that away and then discover uh, that uh, that uh, a cold winter or or some other uh, change in the weather uh, completely uh, disrupts the pricing of the products that are so crucial to people in their everyday lives. Yeah, we haven't figured out the intermittency of, of renewables, many of them, which make which we'll have to put this aside for another conversation, which sort of leads to Saudi Arabia's interest in nuclear, mm -hmm. uh, which is another leg that I think they want to add to their their uh, energy mix. Um, and in fact, if I could jump in right there, because that's a good time to sort of pivot to talking more specifically about renewable energy in Saudi Arabia, if that's okay with you guys. Um, yeah. uh, Adam, you mentioned the kingdom plans to generate 50% of its electricity from clean sources by 2030. And it seems like, and, and Richard, you were talking about the 20s being huge for Saudi Arabia. After COP26, the kingdom's first utility scale solar plant launched in June, Sakaka. Um, the kingdom has some momentum in this space, uh, but the kingdom has uh, seven independent power producer schemes coming online or at least planned. Um, in addition, that would add, excuse me, three gigawatts of uh PV into the mix. Yeah, um, right. Um, Almost four. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess a question that I personally get asked a lot, I know Richard does as well from um, casual observers, is why isn't Saudi Arabia leaning harder into solar with 3,000 hours of sunshine in the desert a year? Um, and I guess it's, it's part of a broader question. Um, 
Is this 50% goal of renewables by 2030 realistically achievable? I mean, if they're only at a few gigawatts now, and you, you mentioned that capacity was 70 gigawatts. Um, so how do we get from three to four gigawatts now to 35 um, in eight years? And if I, can, if I can piggyback on Lucian's excellent question, and, and he's talking about 2030. I mean, in 2019, um, Saudi Arabia upped their goal to 20 gigawatts of solar by 2023. That's next year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't see them getting there. Well, I, when I uh, talked about the 50% number, I said it was a stretch target. I mean, I think that that uh, here in the kingdom, the desire is to push this as hard and fast as as can possibly be done. Uh, I think that that it's important uh, that that things start at a pace that allows for uh, learning uh, on those first projects and and some improvement in the technology as it as it goes forward. Uh, the uh, the the three to four uh, gigawatts that are kind of either on or underway to come over the next year or two. Uh, I, I don't think this is linear, so I think that you could get to that uh, that goal in 2030. Uh, what it's going to require is is a kind of a a exponential kind of curve where where it gets faster and faster as you get out towards. 2027, 20, 28, 29, uh, and then hit the target in, in 2030. Uh, it, you know, it is doable. One of the interesting things that's happening in the kingdom is RepTO, the Renewable Energy uh, Project Development Office, uh, it is uh, allowing for the permitting to take place kind of as a group uh, so that each of these individual projects won't have to go through the entire permitting project. They'll already have a lot of the permits they need in place and that'll speed things up. And that makes that target more achievable as you move out uh, closer to it. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, there is a lot, it's obvious that there's a lot of sunshine uh, in this area. And there are places in Saudi Arabia where the wind blows uh, and and up in the Neom area in the Northwest of Saudi Arabia, you actually get uh, really good solar during the day and really good wind at night, which then helps reduce the amount of batteries that you need if mm -hmm. you're going to try to sustain that. Um, back to the to the issue of of solar, it's not just a cakewalk. I mean, there are issues. You get dust storms, and the dust storms can uh, can put coatings on your solar panels, and you have to find a way to deal with that electrostatically and and otherwise. Uh, and uh, and the very warm temperatures uh, can create problems for the materials being used. Again, get going, get some experience, learn from doing it, and then really ramp it up as you get closer to the target. I think that's the way it's going to be done. And I I I think it's it's uh, it's doable, and I, you know I kind of like to think of it as as Vision 2030. Look, it's it's possible that you can't hit all of those goals of Vision 2030, you know, like, but if, if you can get, get half of it, you know, if you can get three quarters of it, it would be unbelievable. I mean, it would just be such a transformation of the kingdom uh, that, uh, that it's, it's, it will stun everybody with, with how it's, how it's working. 
I think you just hit on the theme of this podcast. All 22 episodes is, is basically that <laughs> theme is um, sort of setting the goalpost to a, a place where even if you're halfway there by the end of it, what you have achieved is astonishing and is beneficial to the, to the whole society. So um, interesting, very interesting. Yeah, agreed. <clears throat> we often talk about it. it's not so much the hitting those marks, it's the direction in which you're headed. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about the the renewable energy sector and 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 another recurring theme we have many on this podcast is uh the PIF public investment right. fund and my understanding is that uh the repto projects repto oversee oversee procurement of 30% of the the projects through this competitive process and PIF um is Set to deliver the remaining seventy percent through direct negotiation with investors, in, in you know, in an effort to develop gigastyle pro- gigascale projects. Um, so, as you say, you refer to not a linear story, but maybe an exponential one. And PAF has shown a proclivity for for coming in big and coming in on, on a massive scale. And so, you may get, as you say, the, you know, we have these these projects in line now. Uh, and there'll be more on the way, and, and, and they'll hopefully, you know, accelerate considerably between Repto and PIF. And I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way of doing it, too, because uh, you'll have some government activity and you'll have some privately driven activity uh, occurring at the same time. And, uh, and that creates a healthy level of competition. I think it's going to be very important, uh, this this aspect of the, the permitting. Uh, Saudi Arabia will have a big advantage in, in moving this along uh, relative to a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. You, you know, in 2017, a, a national investment fund was also set up, and this is, this is uh, advised by BlackRock, U.S.-based BlackRock, uh, with, the, with the intent of investing in power and water. And, you know, they, they, I think their target is $53 billion, uh, Spanning a variety of sectors, we don't hear much about that. Is that is that something that's peop- that's ongoing and active? Well, that's not really that's not really my area of expertise, but I can tell you there are a lot of a lot of projects that are underway. Uh, and uh, Sakaka has built Sudair, uh, solar PV project is is uh, uh, is going to be running very soon, and. Uh, and there are there are others. Capsarc actually has a a five megawatt field on our property. So we had to, uh, at one time. This is really kind of interesting. Maybe it goes back to Lucian and Richard. Your your question about is are these goals really doable? Uh, when that was put in place uh, about uh, eight years ago. Uh, it was the largest solar project in the kingdom. I mean, it's like completely dwarfed now by. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, <laughs> right. So <laughs> think about that, and and uh, and, I, and I have a feeling uh, that this is how how we're going to see things go. As you you start with uh, with projects uh, that are doable and where you learn. And you scale it up, and you do that very swiftly. And I think that's underway. Mm-hmm. Agreed. We should note for our YouTube viewers as well. Um, Adam is uh, sitting in front of Capsarc's building, which was a Zaha Hadid, uh, Zaha Hadid, excuse me, designed um, 
frankly, masterpiece um, lead platinum certification from the United States Green Building Council. So it's really cool. We love the iconic nature of uh, Zaha Hadid's uh, building. Uh, there's a community here too. So a lot of the researchers live on the Capsar campus and uh, the uh, housing is uh, Leeds Gold. The building is Leeds Platinum. Uh, a lot of effort went into uh, the design of Capsar to make it uh, energy efficient. And, uh, and we uh, are learning uh, all along uh, how to improve on what was already done. Before COVID and now it's starting up again uh, with, with travel being allowed, uh, my wife and I have gone out uh, on weekends and visited different parts of the kingdom and I, and I write it up uh, and I usually post it on LinkedIn because I'm, I'm trying to convince people who, who might think about coming here to work at Capsark uh, that Saudi Arabia is actually a really interesting country with a lot of, of, mm -hmm. of wonderful things to, uh, to see and do. And uh, this uh, past weekend, I, uh, I didn't have to go very far at all, literally across the street to the Wadi. Uh, that's like an arroyo for those Americans you know, <laughs> who know <Right>. that work. <laughs> and if you're not from the uh, southwest, yeah, just, a, just a riverbed. <laughs> right, the riverbed. We, and it, it does fill up with rain. And, and we had a big rain and there was water flowing in the wadi. And I took a, a five second video and posted it on LinkedIn. And it's up to 12,000 views. Flowing wow. water in the kingdom. Wow. Flowing water in the kingdom is really wow. precious. <laughs> Adam, if I could, if I could ask you um, sort of an off-script question here, but um, how did you get? Um, how did you partner up with Capsark? And could you tell us a little bit about your journey from the USEIA under the Obama administration and and moving to Saudi Arabia? And uh, I'm sure that was a big life change. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that, that, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, what I was uh, asked to do at EIA was to try to uh, make the research analysis and advice uh, that EIA was providing uh, a little bit more timely and relevant to policymakers. And, uh, and EIA made a lot of progress on that uh, while I was there. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, I think, a great experience for the, uh, the employees at EIA uh, to be seen as participating in the policymaking process uh, from the standpoint of providing factual, uh, good factual uh, information uh, that policymakers could use uh, to help guide uh, how they set laws and regulations and, and implement those. And I was asked essentially to try to do the same thing with CAPSARC, uh, to take uh, something that had was focused, I'd say too, a little too much on just uh, writing academic papers and bring it up to the point where they were acting more like consultants uh, mm -hmm. to anybody uh, that had policy issues that they were struggling with and things like uh, the circular carbon economy and, and the CCE index uh, that Richard mentioned earlier. I mean, that's an interesting example of, of Capsarc has come up with this way of trying to measure performance and uh, kind of position uh, on CCE related activities 
so that you can compare countries uh, on the progress that they're making towards uh, circular carbon economy. And, and if you if you can show things like that, it encourages people to get better, and then that accelerates the move towards uh, cleaner, uh, more affordable, uh, accessible energy. Uh, that is the goal. You know, you're, you're right on that CC index. That's a real <laughs> handy thing. And and let me ask a question on that, if I may, uh, just to try and educate myself. Um, so on that index, uh, Norway is ranked at the top with a with a, a a number of 68. Saudi Arabia is at 40. At the bottom is Algeria, 22. Just just in layman's terms, what's the difference between Saudi Arabia and Norway in terms of the CC uh, index? Yeah, actually, that's really a big a big difference is there's a lot of hydropower hydroelectricity in norway oh, there you go and that gets high marks and uh and a, a carbon uh you know uh, index uh and so that gives norway uh, a uh, a big advantage so what you're uh, saying is that running water in the wadi does it doesn't equalize the, their advantage <laughs> it doesn't run often enough to turn it into a hydro project <laughs> you know but but Look, I mean, you actually, you've raised a really interesting question. And you say, well, what about countries at the far end of that, that index? A lot of that has to do with not being very good at, at controlling uh, the flaring of gas mm -hmm. and gas liquids that goes with oil production. Uh, Saudi Arabia made a decision uh, several decades ago to build a uh, big uh, uh, gas uh, infrastructure system. And so there's very little flaring uh, or venting of methane in Saudi Arabia. And, and I, everybody knows that that's true because there are now satellites to go around right. and measure this. And you can see who's flaring and who's not flaring and you can see where venting is happening. Saudi Arabia's track record is one of the best in the world on that. Uh, and there are a number of, of countries uh, that that just haven't been able to build the gas collection infrastructure to control that. Now, interestingly, uh, the Permian Basin in Texas and up in North Dakota is one of the 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 poorer. It's it's not a very good uh, system of collecting the gas. So there's a lot of flaring and venting that's occurring uh, in uh, Texas and North Dakota uh, that uh, that would be really helpful. Uh, if uh, uh, and the United States has plans to do that, uh, there is a, a global um, producers uh, forum for uh, greenhouse gases, and the U.S. is looking for a way to uh, to partner with uh, with other countries uh, so that producers, as a group, have a, a better track record than than the average that we see right now. That, uh, I think, was one of the biggest successes of this COP26, COP26, was that methane agreement that the U.S. Um, US is signed on to. You know, absolutely. Uh, the Global Methane Pledge wasn't really part of the official proceedings at COP26, uh, but it was one of the very positive things that got done on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of, one of the other official things that got done and, and probably hasn't received as much uh, praise as it should have uh, of 
seen is something uh, that they call Article 6. It allows for the voluntary trading of carbon credits. So as long as you have a good way to measure and, uh, and monitor uh, how the, this is being done, uh, being able to trade carbon credits from one country to another is going to be a terrific way to actually uh, help control carbon and lower the costs of doing it. Uh, the Net Zero Producers Forum that was, uh, that was created by the U.S. Uh, back in April of 2021 at the Climate Summit uh, had uh, five initial signatories, Canada, Norway, uh, Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. And one of the things that they said is uh, methane control is going to be very important. Uh, Moving, spreading out the idea, the framework of the circular carbon economy around the world is going to be part of that. Uh, looking to promote uh, technologies like hydrogen uh, and carbon capture, direct air capture will be one of it, one of those things. And interestingly, the the fourth one uh, that was highlighted at the uh, at the uh, announcement of the Net Zero Producers Forum uh, was looking at ways uh, to help. Uh, countries diversify away from uh, energy as their sole source of revenues. You know, inevitably, if we're talking about, you know, CCE and renewables, we're talking about climate in many ways. Um, it's interesting that the next two COPs, next uh, 27 is in Egypt, COP 27 and COP 28 is in the UAE. Uh, there was a, it, you know, it seemed to me, especially as compared to the Paris Agreement in 2015, that the, the, there was a different type of energy at COP26. Certainly the, the issue of climate change was put to bed. Uh, the number of uh, commitments made by countries around the world is, is vastly larger than it was. Uh, one of the messages taken away from COP26 was come back next year in Egypt not with pledges, but, but with real legislative commitments. And that's what we, we, they're encouraging them to do. But w with these two next, next two COPs happening in the region, and, and Egypt is a, you know, a natural gas and that sort of thing, but it's particularly UAE, our, our fossil fuel producers, uh, will that add impetus and momentum to the, the policies within the region, do you think? Yeah, I, th I think it will. The uh, Saudi Green Initiative uh, was followed a day later by the Middle East Green Initiative, so a regional effort to try to do some of the same things. Uh, net zero pledges by companies, uh, uh, just as an example, um, Saudi Arabia at, uh, at the Saudi Green Initiative launch uh, set a national target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2060. Um, Aramco and SABIC said uh, that they would target scope one and scope two. So they're, they're operated, what they control right. uh, emissions. Uh, they'd hit net zero by 2050. Uh, Saudi Arabia increased uh, what they call the nationally determined contribution. That's how many uh, you know, millions of tons uh, you plan to, uh, to try to control uh, from 130 to 270. Uh, they uh, the kingdom joined the global methane pledge mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to try to cut uh, methane emissions by 30% on a global basis. 
as I said, the kingdom's track record there already is stellar, actually. And uh, and part of the green initiative was the planting of uh, of you know billions of trees. Uh, you can actually see some of that underway in Riyadh uh, now. Uh, it's uh, greening up, uh, and uh, it it should help um, with uh, you know kind of microclimates, uh, but it it makes it look nice. Uh, the but there are real benefits to doing this. I mean, this is a real economic uh, opportunity in, in many ways uh, because, uh, again, it's scalable. Uh, some of these ocean-based solutions are really, really interesting, and that's being explored uh, very heavily uh, by the King Abdullah University for Science and Technology, KAUST, that's over uh, in the... Uh, the uh, the western part of the kingdom by by Jeddah. Now, there are a lot of scientists over there uh, working on all kinds of interesting things uh, like uh, ocean-based uh, uh, solutions to carbon dioxide, uh, but also looking at things like carbon-cured concrete. So using uh, carbon dioxide uh, to, in a sense, make uh, the concrete rather than water. And that could be, uh, not only does it lock up the carbon, uh, but it might be a huge benefit to uh, uh, a lot of countries like Saudi Arabia where water is, is a precious resource. Fascinating. So we could, uh, we could someday live in a carbon sink. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it, we have to. I mean, <laughs> you, you, in a sense, that's what we we need to be thinking about. You know, let me let's come back to carbon for a second. There's you can you can think of carbon as coming in three forms. There's uh, there's living carbon, and that's things like trees and what's happening in the oceans and and what you breathe. You're, you know, you're living carbon. Uh, there's durable carbon, and that's carbon that can get locked up uh, in in uh, geologically or or in things like mangroves so that you can actually uh, lock it up it's durable it stays there even some forms of plastic can lock up carbon for a very long time mm -hmm. uh, you know well what's the other form of carbon and that's fugitive carbon that's what we don't want we like living carbon we like durable carbon and, uh, and we like recycled and reused carbon. What we don't want is fugitive carbon. And, and so every, there are people, this is back to the let's ban hydrocarbons people. What they should really be saying is what we want to ban is the fugitive carbon that's creating the problem, right? So uh, focus on the problem, not, not, you know, like picking on some fuel, Fuels are useful, and and we need to think about it. We need to differentiate. We need to be a little smarter in how we're ap approaching the problem. And you know, I, I think we're actually getting there. And I think that the experience that people are having uh, this year uh, with uh, with uh, fuels is is awakening people to the idea that yes, we have to do this. We, you know, controlling the fugitive carbon. We're going to get on with it, but let's be practical and sensible about it uh, because uh, there are so many ways that it's useful and it's needed in the economy and for, for living. 
Well, Adam, you're prescient. My last question with the question mark at the beginning was difference between living carbon, durable carbon, and fugitive carbon. <laughs> so I think you, <laughs> that's probably a good point to stop. <laughs> you know, there, there's all kinds of things that, you know, you know I come back to, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, the, there are so many programs that are underway here in the kingdom uh, that are are making uh, both the environment and 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 the habitat uh, so much better for everybody. Uh, Saudi Aramco has this huge giant oil field that's capable of producing a million barrels a day called Sheba. It's over in the what they call the empty quarter, the Rubal Kali, because uh, there's not a lot there. They've got sand dunes that are a thousand feet high in that area. Uh, and they found oil back in the late 1960s there. And, and uh, uh, not that long ago, they figured out a way to develop that, uh, that field. And it's now um, a big oil producer. Uh, but right next to uh, the oil field is a, uh, is a wildlife refuge. And what Saudi Ramco has managed to do is to bring back the desert gazelle the Arabian oryx uh, and and believe it or not ostriches, which used to be, um, uh, you know, in that region uh, hmm. naturally, and uh, and it's being restocked. I mean, there are things like this that are underway in the kingdom uh, that I think people just don't don't uh, don't know about, and I think if they did, uh, they would have a a much broader view of the kinds of things that are underway socially and economically uh, in the kingdom that are really positive. And I've seen so much of it uh, in the four years that I've been here. It's, you know, back to your question, Richard, about my, uh, uh, you know, my, my life in the kingdom. Uh, it's been a unbelievably interesting time to be here and see the progress uh, that's being made uh, in both the social uh, economic and, and what I'm going to call ambitious uh, uh, nature of the transition uh, to uh, Vision 2030 and beyond that's occurring. I think with that, gentlemen, let's move on to our final subject or our final <clears throat> segment, excuse me, called Yella, Saudi in a minute, Yella. Um, in a minute. So we will uh, <laughs> rapid fire through, as we have been doing the past few weeks, several topics um, that deserve an honorable mention this week. Um, and I'm, <laughs> Richard, I'm going to kick it over to you to get us started. Uh, first off, according to an OECD report, India, Saudi Arabia, France and Turkey are leading the bounce back from COVID-19 across the G20 forum of the world's major economies. The report estimates that in the third quarter of 2021, India's GDP grew 12.7%, followed by Saudi Arabia at 5.8%. That is that is significant growth. Of course, Omicron uh, notwithstanding in 2022, it looks like uh, GDP growth for Saudi Arabia should be very strong. Um, I'm sure you covered it, but the vaccination rate here is pretty good, and it's widely available to uh, everybody in the kingdom, not just Saudis, obviously. Uh, I, I got vaccinated here before most of my friends did in the United States. Uh, I think by any global metric, Saudi Arabia has scored aces in terms of its uh, handling the coronavirus pandemic and, and should be commended. And it's so hard right now with people going back into an Omicron wave to, you know, be restart some of the 
protocols that were in place, but uh, I know Saudi Arabia has tried to do a little bit of that, but they've, they've had a really good track record in terms of this pandemic. Indeed. And I would add on that, on that, on that uh, first yellow, I guess the World Bank has uh, Saudi Arabia's economy growing at 4.9% in 2022 this year. I think uh, Jedwa has it a little higher, but in any case, yes, Saudi Arabia has done, there you go. You know, part of the part of the you know things they are able to uh, reap is what they sowed during the pandemic in terms of getting the the virus under control and enabling the economy to come back online. Absolutely. Okay, we're we're going to come back to this theme of conservation for the second yellow topic of the set of the ocean's seven known species of sea turtles. Five can be found in the Red Sea and the Arabian Gulf surrounding Saudi Arabia. These five species are the olive ridley, the loggerhead, the leatherback, which are classified as vulnerable by the WWF, and the green and hawksbill, which are classified as endangered. The Saudi National Center for Wildlife is working to identify and protect their nesting sites and has also established a safe haven for these turtles near Wakati Island, <laughs> which is an area protected by the Red Sea Development Company. That is cool. That is awesome. The Red Sea is an amazing place. It is. And the water is very clear and there's like fantastic corals there. And it turns out that the somewhat warmer temperatures that have existed for a long time in the Red Sea uh, may have created a class of corals that stand up better to higher uh, temperature water. And their uh, coust is looking for ways to colonize uh, Red Sea corals uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, uh, if that is, is safe to do. Fascinating. Amazing. That's cool. <laughs> um, yellow number three, Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman has declared the kingdom's intention to harness uranium as an alternative energy source. He stressed that uranium mining and the development of a nuclear energy program will anchor the clean, kingdom's clean energy initiative. The minister confirmed that Saudi Arabia, quote, will deal with the uranium reserves with the utmost transparency, unquote. You know, there was a... Uh this is one of the other things, and again, everybody thinks of oil and you know gas here in Saudi Arabia, and of course solar. Uh, but the uh, mineral uh, potential in the kingdom is is huge. Uh, there was a conference last week here called the uh, Future Minerals uh, uh, Forum, yeah. and uh, yeah, both. <laughs> yeah. And and the uh, there were thirty five hundred people in person. Uh, another 4,000 virtually. There were uh, 100 uh, ministers from around the world. Uh, there were 32 countries represented uh, across two days of really interesting workshops and exhibits. Uh, and uh, I have a feeling that Saudi Arabia uh, is, uh, is, over the course of the next decade, uh, going to be seen as a hub for responsible, clean minerals uh, development. We did, an, we did an episode on this recently, and uh, it is fascinating. And Saudi Arabia is pushing hard in the minerals. They see it as, a, as you know, they see it as one of the primary pillars in, turn, in their efforts to industrialize and to, to uh, grow sectors that will create jobs as well as uh, produce revenue. And there are, it's already a uh, you know, revenue-producing sector, I think $26 billion last year in, in their minerals. But we looked at that Arabian Shield and, you know, an estimated worth 1.3 trillion, trillion worth in terms of, of minerals. 
Uh, and it is interesting how this, these tie together, uh, you know, the uranium and another source of clean energy. We talk about Saudi Arabia being especially interesting on the energy scene because they're expanding in every aspect. And we're talking about, you know, growing their, expanding their crude production capability, expanding their natural gas, expanding their, their renewables, expanding their clean energy, hydrogen. And, and actually, when we have talked about it, we haven't really included uh, nuclear. So, uh, again, growing in that area, too. Uh, just across the board. Yellow topic number four. Later this month, Newcastle United players will travel to Saudi Arabia for the first time since the club was purchased by the company company's, excuse me, the country's PIF. The trip is designed to give the magpies, as they are known, a chance to enjoy the warm weather <laughs> training camp while also giving the club a chance to take part in some media duties in an, in an attempt to raise their profile in Saudi Arabia. I got to say, uh, Saudi weather right now, it's uh, probably 31 degrees in St. Michael's, Maryland. Um, it sounds really, really nice. So I'm sure the um, the UK-based magpies are excited for a little bit of desert sun. Just a guess. Um, but very did interesting. We, did we really have to leave Newcastle? I mean, uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> you mean it doesn't rain every day here in Saudi Arabia? That's nice. There's a, uh, there's a Riyadh football club called the Falcons. And, uh, right. And they get a lot of local support, and it's a lot of fun to see that, actually. And um, we should mention that Saudi Arabia just hosted the Spanish Super Cup uh, finals um, of Spain's top teams there, uh, which is cool. They're, they're really trying to build the international profile of, I'm sorry, build uh, Saudi interest in some of these international teams as, as a way to also generate youth interest in sports in general. So it's, it's cool. It's really cool to see this. Nadme Al Nasser, who was the president of Capsark before me, he's now running Neom, and he presented the cup uh, to the Real Madrid team <laughs> in that competition. Oh, that's that awesome. awesome. <laughs> it was really interesting to see, actually. That's a nice perk of the job. That's a lot of fun. Um, and by the way, let me return to what we foreshadowed at the beginning. This is an example, and Adam, we've talked about it. We did, a, we did an episode on, on sports washing, and we talked about how Saudi Arabia's uh, investments, major investments, are very often tied back into trying to build a, a culture within the kingdom of participation and sports involvement. And uh, it's really interesting that this Newcastle, which again is on the front pages because of all the the controversy and the and the amount in terms of acquiring it that sort of thing. But you know they're bringing it in town to to plug into this very active you know love of of, of football in Saudi Arabia and efforts to expand participation and and get people moving and involved. So this is the in terms of the Yala series. This is so this is the fourth of the six. The next two actually will also be doing the same thing where they're. They're, they're linking a marquee event with participation by Saudis in Saudi Arabia. So, uh, so the next one is uh, after a one-year hiatus in 2021 due to the pandemic, 16 international teams will compete in the Saudi Tour cycling event held February 1 through 5 in Alula. The course will be in five stages and will take riders through heritage sites and the challenging desert terrain of Alula. Um, just as I said, other events that take place along the Saudi trail will include a mass participation ride, so everybody and anybody, a women's race, a junior race uh, organized by the Saudi Cycling Foundation, and a dedicated race for children, so mini kids race, and every finishing area of the five stages. So it's, you've got the marquee event, but you've got all these opportunities for people to participate and get involved and excited about cycling. 
and we are seeing a lot of women's women's sports activities are uh, are picking up in the kingdom as well, and that's very uh, beneficial, uh, I think, uh, from so many different standpoints. I, I keep doing this, Adam. I apologize, but we did a great feature on Lena Almaina, who's the, uh, the co-founder of Jada United. Just a, excellent piece on everything they're doing and what all that she's done and all that Jetta United has done in terms of women's participation in sports. One of the other areas that the, that you might want to think about doing a segment on is fencing. Uh, <laughs> That's interesting. Saudi men and women are uh, uh, are learning how to fence and they're getting pretty good at it. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I'm sure we will get there. <laughs> I mean, as if we didn't have enough topics, right, Lucian? <laughs> Um, let me wrap it up with the sixth one, also a sports one. And yes, a third week in a row, I believe, of me talking about golf. Um, golf Saudi has produced a five-episode documentary that follows Saud al-Sharif and Faisal, Faisal Salhab, two young Saudi golfers who will participate in the star-studded Saudi International being played February 3rd through 6th at the uh, Royal Greens at King Abdullah Economic City. The, quote, see-it-all series will follow the two as they practice, train, and spend time on the golf course and with their families. It will also include uh, inside the ropes self-shot footage from the actual Saudi International Tournament. We have talked a lot about the Saudi International Tournament, the Greg Norman-backed league, which is funded by the PIF. But um, this is cool. I mean, this is the type of stuff that can get homegrown interest in the sport because you'll you'll be seeing Saudis participating in this international tournament with some of the sport's biggest names. I think this is awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's put a bow on it. Um, Adam, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This was incredibly valuable. I think both Richard and I learned a lot. Um, and just thank you so much for your time. We would love to have you back on as soon as we can. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, and good luck to uh, you and everything that you're doing. I think, it's, uh, uh, as I said at the, at the start of the the segment, I think you're doing a great service and keep it up. Thank you, Adam.